Let's open with a word of prayer, and then we're going to go into the word. Father, we thank you that the joy of the Lord is our strength. We thank you for the power of your words, Father God, that we're no longer slaves. And this morning, Father, there is a rhema that came by the Spirit of God, touching our spirits that we are delivered, we can be free, the shackles can be broken, the chains can be let go. And we're going to walk in that freedom, we're going to declare that freedom, we're going to hold on to that freedom. And we thank you for the word, the truth, Father God, which sets us free. Speak to our hearts this morning, God. We thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen. So turn with me to Joshua chapter 10. We're going to be looking at the topic of integrity and how integrity is the foundation of greatness. And when we talk about greatness, we're not talking about greatness before men. We're talking about greatness before God. And I think that when all is said and done, the end of the age is completed and we're going to stand before the Lord, and the roll call is given, those who are the great heroes of the faith will be greatly surprised at those who will be called first and that will receive their rewards. The book of Joshua is really has so many different layers to it about how to come into our promised land. Our theme is how to be a church on the move, but it's also a book about being great before God, not before men, but before God. And the chapter we're going to look at, in fact, should not even be in the Bible. But it's written into the Bible because of the integrity of one man. And we're going to look at this a little more in-depthly in just a moment. But let me just set the stage for us with a, a couple pictures. One of the things as we um, look through the book of Joshua is it's important for us, I think, to realize that there's an actual geographical location on earth where this has happened. This is not just uh, a concept. Um, it actually happened in a place and in time. And the map that we have here is of ancient Canaan, but actually it's where modern-day Jerusalem is. And so I've put a little marker on here, Tel Aviv, and if you were to go to Israel, that's the only place that you can fly into for security reasons. And if you were to take a bus ride from Tel Aviv all the way to Jerusalem, it's only one hour distance. So that gives you a little sense of the size of Israel. It's not that big. It's quite accessible. But when we talk about these different cities, and there's a lot of different cities that we're going to go through, we get the sense that, okay, it's not like, you know, 600 miles away or 1,000 miles away like Canada. It's in a very small geographic region. And I, I like this map because it helps us to walk through the, just the progression of how Joshua brought the people into the promised land. And at each stage, each part of it, there was the sense we're learning another aspect of how to be great in God. Another aspect of how to come into our fullness and how to come into our destiny. Now we know the story picks up in, in chapters 1 and 2, 1, 2, and 3, with the Israelites camped right here at Shittim. Here is the Jordan River, which is a natural boundary, and this is the east side of the Jordan, and this is the west side. And so now Moses has brought the people to the east side of the Jordan River, and Joshua now is the new commander-in-chief, and they are all camped there. And so as they're about to go into the promised land, God gives Joshua some very key instructions on how to thrive and how to flourish. And these are lessons for us as well. When we think about the, the difficulties of just our work life or our career or our family, how do we come into the promised land? How do we come into the deep blessings of God? 
So there are two things that God spoke to Joshua right there in chapter 1. The first was to be strong and courageous. And these are very famous words because God said it to Joshua three times as if to say to his servant, listen, I want you to really, really get this. Be strong and be courageous. Why? Because the human nature is so given to fear. We're so given to our, what we see with our natural eyes and say, that's too big for me to conquer. That's too big for me to overcome. Or I'm too small. I'm just like a grasshopper. Look at all those giants. They're just going to step on me. And God said, listen, I'm going to give you a big assignment. But on the inside, you need to be big. On the inside, you need to be strong and you need to be courageous. A second thing that God spoke to Joshua was to not allow the word of the law to depart from his mouth. He was to meditate it on it day and night. You know, our thought life is so crucial to our emotional stability, our emotional health. We're up and we're down. We feel happy. We feel depressed. It's all a function of our thinking. And so God was saying to Joshua, listen, you're going to go through some difficult things and you need to have an anchor in me. You need to have stability in me. You need to be strong in me and you need to meditate on the word of God day and night. Because we are a forgetful people. There are times when I prepare a sermon and I can look back two or three weeks later and go, I forgot I even said that. And I'm the one who wrote the sermon. We are a forgetful people and we are like sheep. We can just easily get off the path. We can go astray. But when we meditate on the word of God, it keeps us aligned with God's purposes. So then we see then that God led the people through the Jordan River when Joshua parted the Jordan, just like Moses parted the Red Sea. And there were lessons in that as well on how to touch the greatness of God. And we see that God specifically instructed Joshua, let the priest go into the water first and put the ark on the shoulders of the priest. And what does that picture for us? It pictures for us that our worship and our personal time before God Priests were those that were standing before God, not before men, before God. Every single one of us has a secret devotional place in which we have to be before God. And the pattern is, is that when you go out, when you begin to do things in the will of God, make sure that you put on your priestly garments. And out of that priestly garment, out of that place of worship, the ark comes on your shoulders. The ark represents the government of God. It, it represents the prophetic purposes of God. You hear the rhema of God and you step in that rhema, you walk in that rhema, and you're able to part the waters. We see that once they got across the Jordan River, they then camped at Gilgal. Now the Bible tells us that for 40 years, the men of Israel were not circumcised. They had not stopped to identify themselves as God's covenant people. So Joshua says, time out before we go any further we are going to renew our covenant commitment to God. And all the men of God were circumcised. This is a picture of separation. If we want to be great before God, we cannot be, have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. We cannot be on the fence. We have to be wholly sold out for him. The great commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. There better be some passion inside of you. There better be a pulse inside of you. There better be some affections that are strong towards God because of what he's done for you. If we're just lackadaisical, we're passive, we don't really care, why is it that you can care so much about a hockey game? Why is it that you can care so much about your pets? Why is it that you can care so much about your retirement account? Where is your passion for Jesus? 
And so when we talk about being at Gilgal, being circumcised and saying we are a covenant people, we represent God, that's another aspect of how we be great for him. We're living in a time right now where it's very hostile to the gospel. I have to be very careful about what I say in this pulpit and even in other pulpits that I preach in. Because who knows if someone wants to peek in and spy on our freedom and accuse us of something that's other than what the gospel really says. They'll take our words out of context. They'll accuse us. They'll be hostile to us. We need to be strong. We need to know who we are. From Gilgal, we see that the first battle of the Israelites was at Jericho. I mean, Joshua basically is a story one after another of epic events. The Jordan parts, now they're going to Jericho, and Joshua is just raring to go. He's been trained by Moses as a military man. He knows military strategy, but what does he hear from God? Nothing about military strategy. Send out the worship leaders. They're going to do a great job. And then circle the city. Yeah, just, just circle it. Just one time a day. That's enough. That's enough? No reconnaissance, like no measurement of the wall. No. Now, this wall was 25 feet thick, 25 feet wide. I mean, it was massive. Six times they go around the wall, seventh day, seven times the walls fall down. Not by might, not by spirit, not by strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord. God wants to establish a habit, a spiritual discipline inside of us to not default to our own strength. We need to lean on the wisdom and the pattern and the leading of the Holy Spirit. The presence of God has to lead us. I think all of us have had the experience where we do things in our own strength and you go, by golly, why did I do that? Oh, I forgot to pray. I just did it because that was what's natural for me. And so God was teaching Joshua right at the very beginning, you've got this massive assignment, but you're going to learn to be led by the Holy Spirit. It's not going to be because of your own wisdom and your own ability. So Joshua continues to have this school of greatness that he's learning about. And greatness before God is simply doing his will, whether man sees it or not. It's representing his kingdom. So from Jericho, the next incident that we see is with regard to Ai. Pastor John spoke about how there was a terrible defeat for the Israeli army at Ai because a man by the name of Achan stole some stuff that was under the ban at Jericho. So Israel went out, they fled before the enemy, and they have to go through this reboot. And so it's a, a beautiful picture of how no matter what kind of mistakes we've made in life, it does not doom us to failure. God is a God of redemption. As we're journeying towards our fullness, as we're journeying towards our destiny in God, we are going to make mistakes. The Bible says a righteous man falls seven times, but the Lord raises him up. And so that's what we see here with AI and the reboot. God says, okay, you've come back to me. You've come clean. Now here's the way to do it. And they have this beautiful victory at Ai. But as if they didn't learn from that, then the next chapter, chapter 9, again, which Pastor John preached on last week, is around Gibeon. And so the Gibeonites are a ferocious Canaanite tribe. But they are petrified of Israel. And so they go and they strike this agreement with Israel so that they will not be slaughtered. And the surrounding kings hear about this. 
And so we're going to pick up the story now in Joshua chapter 10. And we're going to go through this section by section, verse by verse. It came about when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had captured Ai and had utterly destroyed it, just as he had done to Jericho and its king, so he had done to Ai and its king. And the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were within their land. He feared greatly. Okay, so the king of Jerusalem hears Joshua's defeated Ai. Gibeon now has made this peace treaty with Joshua, and he is really, really scared. So he realizes his city could also be defeated, and he wants to protect his territory. It says here that the king of Jerusalem feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai. So one of the things here that I've put up for you, I'm sorry that you can't really see it, I'm going to kind of geek out on you this morning. Uh, this is a 3D map. This is what's called a relief map. It's not just 2D, it's 3D. So literally, it's um, made so that you can see the terrain and the elevations. So if I were to turn it sideways to you, you can see the bumps and the heights of the actual land of Israel. Now, the reason why this, is, this terrain map or this 3D map is so important is because you get to understand Joshua's strategy in overtaking the promised land. Right down the middle of Israel is the highlands. It's considered the spine of the country. This is the safest place. This is the most difficult cities to take because they're in the highest spots. So Joshua had a very difficult assignment. They were camped down here in the valleys. And Joshua knew that if he was going to take on the enemies in the valley, he would probably be run over. He had the, he had the advantage of speed. And so he wanted to... Uh, he wanted to meet the different tribes up in the high places, but also when they would take them, then they would have a military advantage. So when we just read here in chapter 10 that the king of Gibeah surrendered to the Israelites, the king of Jerusalem goes, what gives? How, how can this happen? Like he's got one of the strongest cities. His city is so famed that it's called one of the royal cities. And so he, then what he does is he mobilizes this coalition. Therefore, the king of Jerusalem sent word to Hoham, king of Hebron, and Piram, king of Jarmuth, and Japhia, king of Lachish, and Deber, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us attack Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the sons of Israel. Okay, so this war that we're reading about is not against Israel. These five kings have said, Listen, our brethren over at Gibeah, they have betrayed us, they made peace with the enemy. We need to go and tear them down. So the five kings of the Amorites, verse 5, the king of Jerusalem, king of Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon, gathered together and went up, they with all their armies, and they camped by Gibeon and fought against it. So we've now five kings against the city of Gibeon. Verse 6, it says, The men of Gibeon sent word to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal. Okay? So even though the nation of Israel has taken out Ai and Jericho, they're still camped down here at Gilgal. There's about two million of them that are there. So they send a messenger saying to Joshua, come and protect us. Do not abandon your servants. Come up as quickly and save us and help us for all the kings of the Amorites that live in the hill country have assembled against us. So here's another map for us to help 
see a little bit more clearly. I've included the map on the left just because it's, it's a relief map and it gives us a sense of the terrain. But here is a close-up of the five kings. So here was Jerusalem. The king of Jerusalem was the ringleader. And he recruited these four other cities, Jarmuth, Lachish, Eglon, Deber, and Hebron. So they're all moving and marching towards Gibeon, which is right here. Now Gilgal is over here. And so Gibeon sent messengers to Joshua here saying, come and rescue us. So in verse 7, it says that Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him and the valiant warriors. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them, for I've given them into your hands. Not one of them shall stand before you. And Joshua came up suddenly by marching all night from Gilgal to Gibeon. Now, you have to realize that the distance from Gilgal to Gibeon was about 25 miles. Pretty long distance to move an entire army. The Roman army, which was at that time one of the, in its day, was one of the fastest moving armies, and they could move about 15 to 20 miles a day and still have enough energy to fight well. So for Joshua to move 25 miles and additionally moving up the mountainside 4,000 feet, so the elevation difference between Gilgal and Gibeah was nearly three-quarters of a mile. So we're talking about a very arduous task. But Joshua says, let's go, guys, and we're going to do it under the cover of night. So they marched to Gibeah, and the Bible says that God gave them success. God confounded them before Israel, as in God confounded the five kings and their armies before Israel. Joshua slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon and pursued them by the way of ascent of Beth Horon and struck them as far as, and these two cities are called Azekah and Makeda. And it came about they fled before Israel while they were in the descent. And the Lord threw large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. And there were more who died from the hailstones than those who died by the sword. I'll just put this one verse up here. Verse 11, as they fled before Israel on the road down from Beth Horon to Azekah, the Lord hurled large hailstones on them, and more of them died by the hail then we're killed by the swords of the Israelites. I mean, this is divine intervention, right? We're not talking about pea-sized hailstorms. We're talking about probably bowling ball-sized hailstorms or basketball-sized hailstorms. It was probably the quickest way to just die. Just doing, you're gone. Just came on you, and God literally took out all these armies. But then this happened. Joshua spoke to the Lord in that day when he had delivered up the Amorites. And we see this verse. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and you moon over the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till Israel avenged itself on its enemies. Just think about that for a second. Wow. The sun stood still. What in the world is going on? Was it that Joshua had such amazing faith? That's part of it. Was it that Joshua had a signs and wonders and miracles ministry? Yeah, that's part of it. I mean, for goodness sake, he parted the Jordan, caused the walls of Jericho to fall down, and now he causes the sun and the moon to stand still. So yeah, that's definitely part of it. 
But that's not the key reason why the sun and the moon paused. The reason why the sun stood still is because God backs integrity. Joshua could have said, I'm not going to go fight for the Gibeonites. I'm not going to risk the lives of my soldiers. I wasn't even planning on this mess. And this mess doesn't even involve me. They're just, this is an internal dispute, a domestic fight that they're having. Let them work it out. Why do I have to need, why do I have to get involved in any of this? They're going after each other. They're going to destroy each other. That works for me. Why would I go and help them? Now, to give you an idea of the ethnic and moral tension, the crisis of this moment, it would be like Hezbollah today, the Arab terrorist group, asking modern-day Israel to protect them. Hezbollah is bent on destroying Israel. And Israel would never protect Hezbollah. But that's what it was like for Gibeon to ask Joshua for help. Joshua was going to take the people into the promised land. The Gibeons were slated for destruction. They were on Israel's no-conquer list. They were the hated Canaanites that engaged in the most depraved religion in the world, including child sacrifice. They represented everything that Israel was not. So why in the world would Israel go and help? Because Joshua had given the Gibeonites his word in chapter 9. He had made a covenant of peace with them by oath, and he was going to honor his word. Even if it led to this crazy scenario that seemingly made no sense, Joshua was a man of integrity. Even if the deal struck with the Gibeonites was his mistake in the first place, as we read in chapter 9, verse 14, Joshua still owned the situation, and he would not back out. And God was pleased with his character. And as we read here in verse 14, it said that God listened to his voice. There was no day like that before or after when the Lord listened to the voice of man. Integrity is the foundation of greatness. This chapter should not even be here. But Joshua said to himself, I made this promise to protect. We have this defense pact. The Gibeonites came and humbled themselves. They said, we will be your servants. And in return for being your servants, then you're our covering and you're the ones that protect us. But here this thing happens, which Joshua could not have anticipated. And he goes, what a mess. What a, this is a total side situation that I don't need to involve myself with. And yet Joshua said, I have to honor my word no matter what it costs me. Integrity is a foundation of greatness. It makes the sun stand still and the moon to stop. Integrity makes the world stand at attention. And integrity is what Joshua had in spades. At the base of his ministry was deep character. And this is promised land living at its best. If we want to be a church on the move, it can't just be aspirational things that we want to do. There has to be a deep-rooted kingdom character by which we become witnesses out there. We cannot be Sunday morning Christians and then go out there on Monday and just act completely opposite to what the scripture says. I hope there is a congruency and alignment between what you hear and what you believe on Sunday and what you do Monday through Saturday. If you don't have that, this church will not have a good reputation. Oh, you go to that church and that's how you act and that's how you behave. 
You know, the influence of this church is not limited to this pulpit, to what I preach or what John preaches. It is much larger than this pulpit. It goes as far as your influence group, the 10, 50, 100 people that you know, because you're the walking gospel. You're the preacher in their lives. There are many that will not come to church on a Sunday morning, but you bring church to them. Paul says that we are living letters. You know how we're all observant. We know how to connect the dots. So people look at your life. They know how to connect the dots in your life. They can read what your life is about. And if we don't have integrity, who wants to read the book? It has a bad ending. Now, unbeknownst to Joshua, his request for the sun and the moon to stand still was also a prophetic demonstration because the sun and the moon were also the main deities among the Canaanites. Their sun gods and their moon gods, they ended up obeying Joshua's voice. And when the Canaanites saw that they obeyed Joshua's voice, it only struck more fear into, this, into their hearts. Who is this man that heaven obeys him? Who is this man that our God listens to his commands? Now Joshua was appealing for more daylight purely for practical reasons, to get the job done. But it also had a prophetic overflow. God was using Joshua's integrity as a powerful witness to the Canaanites. Now place yourself in the city of Gibeon. You're inside the walls. You don't know if this is the day in which you're going to die. You don't know if this is the day in which your wives and your children are going to be slaughtered. So you send out this messenger, but you have no idea if Joshua's coming. And you hear the war cries out there, and all of a sudden, you hear Joshua giving commands to his troops. They're going to save us. They're going to protect us. What do they feel? What did the children and, and, and wives begin to think like? They are here. Joshua's here. This was the man that completely wiped out Ai and Jericho, and now they're saving us? What's going on? What did the Gibeonites think when they saw the storm clouds of hail raining down on the fleeing kings? What did they think when they felt the sun stop for a full day? What did the Gibeonites now think of the Israelites that they hated so much. This is a different people. We can respect them. All because Joshua was a man of his word. Anytime we move in integrity, especially when it costs us like it did Joshua, it's going to be a witness to the world. Integrity reflects the very character of God. Psalm 89, the scripture says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. You know, the thing about foundations is that no one sees it. You don't see the foundation of this building. You don't see the foundation of a skyscraper. But if a skyscraper doesn't have a deep foundation, it cannot support the height of that building. So we don't get to see the foundation, but it's absolutely crucial. And the foundation that you have and the foundation that we have is so, so vital. And the scripture says here that the foundation of God's authority, his throne, is righteousness and justice. Loving kindness and truth go before him. If God had no integrity, we could never depend or trust on him. Jesus Christ is the greatest leader to ever live, and you can bank your entire life and your eternity on him. 
we look at the people that we have to vote for in Canada, and the thing that's going on in the back of our minds is, is this going to be another string of broken promises? Can we actually trust him? Is righteousness and, foundation and justice the foundation of their throne and their authority? But with God, he never does wrong by anyone. He always does the right thing. He is true. He is faithful. He is just. His integrity never, never varies a single degree. That's why light is the perfect metaphor for God. 1 John 1.5, God is light. There's nothing more true and straight than a ray of light. We cannot demonstrate the kingdom without character and integrity. This is why God said in Isaiah 56, maintain justice and do what is right. For my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the one who does this. This is exactly what Joshua did. He did what was right. He honored his word to the Gibeonites and he saw the salvation of God. And he was blessed, just like Isaiah says there in Isaiah 56. Integrity has the power to stop the world, to change the world. And in Joshua's case, it was literally. Integrity stops corruption. Integrity stops greed. It stops adultery. Integrity is passionate about justice, about protecting those who can't stand up for truth. Integrity is not just about the picture, big picture, but it's also about everyday living, making sure that your life reflects the values of the kingdom. I think about the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10 and how there are many things that he exhibited that are very similar Joshua we know the parable that Jesus gave us a man fell among robbers he was beaten stripped he was half dead the scripture says there was a priest that came by saw the man that was beaten walked on the other side there was a Levite that saw him beaten saw the situation and passed on the other side then there was a certain Samaritan who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion, came to him, bandaged up his wounds, poured oil and wine on them, put him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. Whenever, whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Here's the thing about integrity. Number one, it's not convenient. It was completely inconvenient for Joshua to marshal his forces to go all night, 25 miles, go up 4,000 feet to protect a people that they hated just a few weeks earlier. Why would we do this? Because integrity demands it and because it's the right thing to do, even if it's inconvenient. For the Samaritan to go by, oh man, we're talking about a priest and a Levite didn't stop. I'm a busy man. I'm a man of the cloth. I've got meetings to go to. I've got strategy to plan. I can't do this. Now, I'm as guilty as anyone else, right? We're always so busy, and it's hard to slow ourselves down. But the good Samaritan, he said, I need to help a fellow brother. This is the right thing to do. Integrity doesn't mind that things are inconvenient. We see here, too, that integrity costs time and money. Really? 
You mean I have to spend my own money? I have to spend my own time? Yeah, you do. That's what leads to greatness. If you don't have to lift a finger, if you don't have to invest, if you don't have to be part of a person's situation, how is that great? The good Samaritan gave up his money, put the man on his beast, bandaged him, cared for him, sat with him, poured oil and wine on his wounds. And then if that wasn't enough, he said to the innkeeper, whatever extra charges are incurred, I will pay it. That's integrity. But it also pictures for us that integrity finishes the job. Okay, I got him into the end. I did my obligation. That's good enough. No, he wanted to make sure that this job was completed. And that's what Joshua did. Okay, the kings were already fleeing. They were going down the ascent. If you look at this relief map right here, they were going down, rushing down the mountains. Joshua said, oh, all done. I finished what I could do. Guys, let's go back to Gilgal. No, he needed to finish the job. We cannot be half-hearted. I remember when I was growing up, my mom was teaching me how to do my chores properly. One of my chores was to empty all the garbage. So every Saturday, I would go and I'd empty the garbage, and then she'd come back around me, behind me, to make sure that I did it correctly. One particular Saturday, I thought I did my job great, except for one room in which I have left a little Kleenex outside the waste paper basket. And she said, Rich, you did not do a good job. I go, what? Of course I did a good job. Look at all of it's gone, except for this little thing. She goes, no, you didn't do it correctly. I didn't finish it all the way. Here I am, 50-some years later, I still remember that lesson. She taught me something about integrity and finishing the job and not being half-hearted and not leaving something half done. You know, how it's so interesting how if we just work hard, we get people's attention. That's amazing. Just work hard. Integrity says, I'm going to be responsible. I'm going to get the job done. And here we have in Joshua chapter 10, the commander-in-chief saying, I'm not even supposed to be in this situation, but I am going to get the job done. In fact, in order for me to get the job done, sun, you have to stop. Moon, you have to cease. I mean, how did God stop the sun? We know that the earth revolves around the sun, right? It takes a year for the earth to, to make that full circuit. And then our light and day is a, because of the 24-hour rotation. So God didn't actually stop the solar system, but he probably did pause the earth. Or maybe he allowed the earth to spin extra slow. Instead of taking 24 hours, it took 48 hours. Joshua is so audacious about finishing his job and being true to his word that he cried out to God, please make the sun stand still and the moon in the valley of Ajalon. And you know what? God backed him. Why did God do such a supernatural thing? Because God backs integrity. You can never go wrong being a person of character, being a person of integrity, and doing what's right. This is the seed of greatness. Not greatness before man, but greatness before God.
So, Lord, we just thank you this morning for the picture that's given to us in Joshua chapter 10. We thank you, Father God, that Joshua ended up writing this chapter because he wanted to be true to his word. And you did something spectacular because you were so pleased with his commitment. And this morning, Father God, we want to be committed afresh to being like Joshua, to being a people of integrity, to being true to what we say and what we do, that people can depend on us like we can depend on you. That if we want to make an impact in Vancouver, we want to make an impact in our workplaces, we want to make an impact with those that are around us, then we have to have that integrity because integrity reflects who you are. So Holy Spirit, cause us to take the next step into the promised land. If we have been short or we've been weak in this area, Spirit of grace, come and give us the strength that we need to walk in who you are. We thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen.